Father, how can we be so lucky that you would love us? How can we be so fortunate that you would choose to set your affection on us from eternity past and you would call us to yourself? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. We deserve none of it, and yet you give us all of it, and you give us every spiritual blessing in your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in him we come to you this morning, seeking to know you, to learn of you, and to celebrate you, and to obey you, uh, and to follow after you. So I pray you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. That, by the way, that last song is my favorite hymn of all time. Uh, Take a note. Make sure that my family remembers to sing that at my funeral. I love that hymn. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, I'm going to be primarily focusing on verses 37 to 45 this morning. But I want to go back and I want to reread the section that we covered last week because it sets up a a contrast that we'll see and look at together in our passage. So open to Luke 9, but then go back to verse 28. That's where I'm going to start reading down through verse 45. So a little bit of a lengthier passage, uh, but I think you'll understand uh, why we're going to do this. So follow along as I read. It says, now about eight days after these sayings, he took, this Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was said, what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. 
But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. We'll stop reading there uh, for this morning. In the early 1500s, Pope Clement uh, Clement VII commissioned Italian high Renaissance master Raphael to paint what was called the Transfiguration of Jesus. He wanted this painting to be used as an altarpiece for a cathedral in France. And so Raphael worked on this painting in the years preceding his death in 1520. From its completion all the way through until the early 20th century, many commentators regarded this painting as the most famous oil painting in the entire world. Here's what he painted. What is unusual about this painting is that while it certainly contains a depiction of the transfiguration of Jesus at the top, at the bottom half of the painting is the next episode from the Gospels, the healing of a boy who's demon-possessed. You can see him there in the bottom right-hand corner. Raphael seems to capture the striking contrast between these two events because you see above there is glory, below there is shame. Above there is light, below there is darkness. Above there's clarity, below there's confusion. Above there's rejoicing in the majesty of the Messiah and below there is defeat by the powers of evil. What I want for you and I to see this morning and to understand this morning is that that contrasting reality still exists today. And we can learn this from Luke's account of this little boy and his interaction with Jesus. And what we want to find is how does this work and how do we apply that in our lives today? Look again at what he says in verse 37. He says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Now remember, we just read that the night before, Peter and James and John had been up on the mountain with Jesus and they witnessed his transfiguration, or uh, it's, it's a word from which we get our word, a metamorphosis, of Jesus when his inner divine glory was unveiled from his flesh and they got to see for a moment his brilliant, majestic glory. Those three disciples were allowed to see a glimpse of his true nature, one of perfection and one of complete obedience to the Father. 
And while they were there looking at Jesus, they also saw Moses and Elijah, Moses and Elijah being representatives of the law and the prophets. But Jesus shines beautifully as a fulfillment of both of those. He obeyed the law perfectly and all of the prophecies of the coming Messiah all pointed to him. Jesus, even in that painting you saw, is the high and supreme one. He is superior to all. While they were there, God appeared in a cloud and he verified Jesus' identity by calling him my son, my chosen one. And then he issued this command, listen to him. And not only did that verify in the disciples' minds, yeah, this really is the Christ, it also was a great encouragement to Jesus as he again was reminded of the Father's love toward him as he looked at the horrors of what awaited him in Jerusalem. To have been up on the mountaintop that night before would truly have been a mount, what we would call a mountaintop experience. So glorious was that experience that Peter actually wanted to erect tents and he just wanted to remain there. But that was not the mission for which Jesus had been sent into the earth. They must come off of the mountain and face the realities below. And the realities that they face when they come down off of the mountain are dark and grim. Not only, no sooner had they arrived at the bottom, but the crowds come running for healing. They are hurting, they're diseased, they're crippled, they're ill, they're, they're blind, they're deaf, they're lame. And among the crowds on this particular day is a dad with a son. This dad, like all good dads, loved his son. And not only did he love his son, but he loved him all the more because this was his only child. Luke, being a good medical doctor, takes really good notes for this. And Luke is the one that mentions this over and over throughout his gospel. Uh, in fact, you remember that Jairus had only one daughter, Luke told us. Uh, he also told us that the widow at Nain had only one son. Luke now here records another only child. And this dad loved this child. I have pictured that this dad would come home from work like, any good dad, and he would he would play with his son. Maybe when he was a toddler, he would throw him up in the sky, uh, much to the mortification of his mother as he goes flying uh, up in the air. I, I'm sure this dad would bring home toys and bring home money, to, of course, for food and clothes for this uh, young boy. He was a good dad. He loved his son. He wanted his son to grow up to be mature and, and successful. And then... Something awful happened. In verse 38, it says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's an only child. And behold, this spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. What this father is describing is a chilling nightmare that you would only find in a horror movie. 
unexpectedly and without warning, an evil spirit pounces on this child. Can you imagine being awakened in the middle of the night by the blood-curdling scream of your desperate child when this happens? The day, you would go running to the room like I'm sure this dad did, only to find his son being thrown around in convulsions, his body distorted as this demon just throws him around in a fit of rage. The boy is foaming at the mouth, we're told. He, he loses control of his bodily functions as this demon tears down through his organs. Eyes wide open, The son is looking at you and he's trying to scream, help me, dad, help me. And you can hardly make out the words because Mark tells us that when the demon throws him down, the boy grinds his teeth and his body just goes stiff. It's an electrified charge of evil that's surging through his vein and his body is being shattered from the inside out. You grab a hold of your son and you hold him as he's shaking. It's like he's going into some epileptic seizure in what feels like an eternity. Finally, the demon departs and your son gasps for air. And you put him into bed with you for the rest of the night hoping that that demon doesn't come back. And if that isn't bad enough, you have to keep a constant eye on this child because Matthew tells us that when the demon has the opportunity, he will violently throw the boy into a lake or into a fire trying to hurt him. You are on a 24-7 red level alert with this child, never knowing for sure when the next attack will come. Can you imagine what that's like? Contrast what's happening here in this valley to what the disciples experienced that night before on the mountain. Last night up on the mountain, it was tranquil. It was glorious. It was filled with brilliant light. It was harmonious. It was encouraging. There were words spoken in love. It was fitting. It was right. It was holy. And today in the valley, it's chaotic. It's dark. It's disconcerting. It's hateful. It's destructive. It's ugly. It's evil. The contrast between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom could not be starker. That contrast has not gone away. It is still very much in our world today. And I would argue, for better or for worse, we're seeing it play out in full display across the land in which we live. Let me give you some examples. Just two weeks ago, we hosted Vacation Bible School. And it was glorious. So much fun, smiles and happiness. And 
we learned about Jesus and there was a sense of holiness and respect and awe and honor because we wanted them to be in right relationship with God. Contrast that with a weekend event that's coming to Sarasota in August with scheduled nightly themes including these titles, Pride Booze Cruise, Leather and Lace, and Drag Bingo. It's a pretty big contrast, isn't it? Here's another example. Jesus taught us to value and love children, and we celebrate new births at our church. In fact, Ryan mentioned how many new dads we have this year on Father's Day. There's a bunch of them. We love them. We, we, we look forward to children in our church. Beyond just our own biological and adopted children, we have a lot of families in our church that are foster families and we support those families with prayer and with food and financial support because God created life and we love that. Contrast that. If you go down every Tuesday on Central Avenue in our city, there in the Planned Parenthood, there are babies brutally murdered in their mother's womb in the name of sexual freedom and women's health care. God creates life. Satan destroys it. Let me give you another one. We believe that God created male and female, and we celebrate that, and we honor those differences because God doesn't make mistakes, and God creates each sex with a unique and beautiful station in life. Contrast that with the cosmetic surgeon down on Clark Road, who still, to this day, has ads on his website for top surgery. Do you know what that is? as a nice way, as a, as a benign description of genital mutilation, where a doctor will remove perfectly healthy breasts from a girl who wants to become a boy. You see, Satan always seeks to destroy, to maim, to distort, to confuse, harm, and annihilate anything created in the image of God. In the valley is chaos, it's dark, it's hateful, it's destructive, it's ugly, it's evil. And when a culture gives itself to celebrating that kind of darkness, it's actually a sign that God's judgment is already on that culture. I truly believe that we are living beneath God's judgment on our country. How do you know when it's arrived? Just read Romans 1. And at the very end of Romans 1, Paul writes this, Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We are in the smack middle of what our country calls Pride Month. Everywhere you look, from the White House 
all the way to my neighbor down the street, you will see rainbow flags and celebrations of all things sexually perverted. You don't think that those aren't signs of God's judgment on our nation? Wake up, friends. We're in the middle of it. And unless repentance occurs, and quickly, the blessings of what we enjoy in our land will soon be gone. And here's the thing. We can always expect that valley chaos and that persecution to come from the hands of non-Christians. We always expect that, that it comes from the outside, from those who don't identify as Christians. And that does occur. But what is even worse are those who call themselves Christians and are so progressive, so tolerant, so inclusive that they turn on those who hold to biblical truth and they cry foul. Entire churches are turning against churches that hold to a biblical fidelity. They mock them, telling them, you need to get on the right side of history. It is happening all around us. The darkness of the valley is desperately trying to blot out the brightness of the mountaintop. But Jesus wins. How? Let's keep reading. Here comes this dad to Jesus. He's already gone to the nine disciples who didn't go up on the mountain with Jesus on the previous night. In verse 40, he says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not, which is an absolutely shocking statement since earlier, just in Luke chapter 9, Jesus had actually given his disciples the authority to do just that. So what happened? Why couldn't they do it? Well, Mark gives the answer to that question. In Mark chapter 9, it says when he had entered the house, the disciples asked Jesus privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You know what scares the bejeebers out of me when I read that? The disciples had likely began looking at their ministry as mechanical, being dependent on their own ability to do this or that, and they started slacking in their prayer life. They started slacking in their dependence on God, and it became old hat. They just did it because that's what they could do, right? And that scares me because any pastor could fall into that same trap. I got to tell you, after 18 plus years of ministry, it's pretty easy for me to walk into a counseling room and talk with somebody. It's not nearly as difficult to study God's word and prepare a sermon as when I first started. And there are many days I can do all the operational things without a stitch of prayer. And here's what's subtle about that. You don't realize that it's happening until the power goes away. And when I'm not praying, 
And when I'm not depending on God, when I'm relying on my skills and I'm relying on my routine and I'm relying on my expertise, all of a sudden, when the power is needed the most, it's gone. And it's this slow fade. So I want to ask you, will you pray for me as your pastor? Will you pray for me and Ryan and Jason that what happened to the disciples doesn't happen to us? That we continue to be men of prayer, men who depend on God, men who always look to him as our source of prayer so that when we are called to serve you and serve this church, that we don't try to do it out of our own power, but that we do it out of God's power? Thank you for praying for us. Jesus answered, verse 41, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be here with you and bear with you? Now, when you read that, what goes through your mind? You're probably like me, and you hear a bit of frustration there. Maybe you hear out of Jesus' mind sort of this, you know what, I'm just about ready to quit this whole thing on you guys. I, I don't, I don't, what is wrong with you people? Why do I, why do I put up with this day after day after day? Is that, is that what you hear? To be fair, there is a certain dissatisfaction that Jesus is having with these people. Maybe it's with the crowd in general because they're always coming to Jesus, looking for his goodies, but they never take his words to heart. So he has some dissatisfaction with that. He, he may have had dissatisfaction with the scribes who were probably there, gloating over the fact that these nine disciples couldn't cast out the demon. He has dissatisfaction with the nine disciples, because they fail to depend on him. They don't put their hearts on him and put their hearts into persevering prayer. There's a clear satisfaction or dissatisfaction with the situation. They are a faithless and twisted generation, to be sure. Ours is too. But I don't think it's because he's just fed up and he's just looking for a quick ticket out of town. Here's why I think that he says this. All of these things that are happening here in this valley bring him suffering. He is called the suffering servant. The cross will bring him suffering, to be sure. But so also did the unbelief and the wickedness of the people among whom he had to live. In light of this perfect love that he experienced with his father, it was painful for him to endure with those who lacked those qualities or failed to exercise them. It hurt our Savior to live in the valley. But I want to come back to the question that I asked earlier. Jesus wins, but how? How does he win? Well, look at the end of that verse, verse 42. It says, or verse 41 rather, it says, bring 
your son here. Mercy triumphed. In the midst of his own suffering, Jesus loved this man and he loved his son. In fact, later in Jesus' life, in his deepest sorrows on the cross, even there, you will hear him express his deep love for his own mother to make sure she was cared for after his passing. That is so different from us. When we are in deep distress, we typically don't take an interest in other people, do we? I want you to think back to the last time that you were suffering. You were really hurting. Maybe it was physically, maybe it was emotionally, maybe it was spiritually. Think back to the last time that you were really suffering. The, the last thing that you wanted in that moment was for somebody else to come along and say, I've got this problem, will you help me? Right? You and I typically check out when we're hurting. We typically move away from people. We usually say, I don't want to be bothered right now. Leave me alone. I've got enough problems of my own. I'm just going to go back here. I'm just going to go to bed. Poor, pitiful me. I don't want to be around you right now. We hide. Not Jesus. He engaged. He loved. Jesus sought their benefit over his own in spite of his own agony. What an example. And what a challenge. Amen? (laughs) Bring your son here. In one last attempt to destroy this boy, the demon pounces one more time, throws him to the ground, verse 42, did not phase Jesus in the slightest. With one rebuke, he ordered the demon to get out of him, and the demon goes skedaddling off into the air. There is no power greater than that of Jesus. And notice at the end of verse 42, it says, Jesus gave him back to his father. One of the things that I love about Jesus is that he was far more than just a miracle worker. Everything he did came from his heart. One of the common that I love to read. He reflected on the miracles of Jesus and he pointed out this pattern. Back earlier in the book of Luke, Jesus cured the centurion's servant. He didn't just cure the servant. After he did that, he commended the centurion. Jesus restored health to the Gergesene demoniac and then he made him a missionary. Jesus healed the bleeding woman And then he comforted her fears. He raised the dead daughter of Jairus. And then he said, somebody bring her some food. This girl's hungry. He raised the son of the widow of Nain. And then he tenderly returns her, returns him to his mother. This story here is no exception. Jesus not only heals the little boy of his demon possession, but then he gives him back to his dad. It's an act of kindness. It's an act of tenderness. That's our Lord. That's just how he is. 
verse 43 says, all were astonished at the majesty of God. And to be honest, that actually is a surprising statement. We would have expected it to read, and all were astonished at the majesty of the Christ. But what's the problem here? The problem is they still don't see Jesus as the Messiah. They see him as a great man. They see him as a wonderful teacher. They even see him as a worthy rabbi. But the crowds are not making the ultimate connection that this man is actually the very son of God. In fact, later in the gospel, when Jesus makes that explicit claim, they can't handle it and they end up crucifying him over it. They don't see the Christ. It's sad, really. Verse 43 goes on to say, While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to the disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Friends, The priceless thing in this text is not the casting out of demons. There are some preachers and there are some churches that will capitalize on that miracle and that becomes the focus of their ministry in their church. I'm sure you've heard of ministries like that and churches like that and prosperity gospels like that who claim that these miracles are the end all and be all and they name it and they claim it and they blab it and they grab it and there's more there's more than enough health and wealth and prosperity to go all around there's churches like that in Sarasota you can go find them that is not the priceless thing in this text While the crowds are marveling at the miracle, Jesus leans into his disciples and he predicts once again the priceless thing, and that is his impending death on a cross and his subsequent resurrection. The crowds are going crazy over his exorcism. And Jesus said, it's what's coming in Jerusalem is the main thing. Let these words sink into your ears. In other words, disciples, what I'm getting ready to tell you next is the most important. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That phrase, that sentence can be taken in two right and corresponding ways. Number one, First, Jesus was, of course, eventually delivered by the hands of the Jews into the hands of the Roman establishment, which both decreed and then carried out his crucifixion. So in one sense, he is delivered by men to men. But in another very real and more important sense, Jesus was delivered into the hands of those Romans by his Father in heaven. In Acts chapter 2, we read this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of who? God 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What happens in Jerusalem happens because God planned it. According to verse 46 in our text, the disciples did not understand this. And they're afraid to ask. Either they're still confused by what Jesus meant when he said this, or God himself may actually have been holding back all of the pieces of clicking. They won't really understand the fullness of his plan until after his resurrection. Here's what I want you to take away from this text. Two things that I want you to take away. Before I even give you those two things, I want to... That chaos, let me just remind you, that chaos that you see here in the valley is not unlike what we see today. And for some of you, that will initially bring a tinge of fear across your heart and mind. So first thing I want you to take away from today, refuse to give in to the fear. Refuse to give in to the fear. What I want you to do, again, is to commit yourself to Jesus, not just because he has amazing, magnificent power to cast out demons. He has that. But I want you to commit to him because he was about to be betrayed and crucified. And on the cross, Jesus displayed Satan-crushing, evil-overcoming, death-defying power. And when you commit yourself to that Jesus, you will find that that same power resides in your heart. He's within you. Jesus was never fearful of evil. He looked at it straight in the eye. He opposed it. He stood firm in the face of it. And when he stood firm and when he spoke, the devil had to flee He will do the same thing with you as you stand firm in Jesus Christ and as you depend on him. You don't have to be fearful no matter what happens to the United States of America. Which leads to my second admonition to you. Refuse to resort to your own methods of dealing with man's sin problem. What were the disciples supposed to do? Why didn't they have power? They were supposed to be praying and they were supposed to be depending on Jesus' strength. What I don't want you to do, Bethelites, is for you to go out of this room and be rude to people and to spout off to people and to Treat people with disrespect, whether that's face-to-face or whether that's on your Facebook post. I don't want you to find some little joy in their reaction to your smart aleck comment. It doesn't work. What does work is for you to pray for sinners, to treat them with grace and kindness Stand for truth. I'm going to ask you not to stand for truth. Absolutely. Speak the truth. But then watch how Jesus can accomplish things through you that you cannot do on your own strength. Don't give in to the fear and rely on Jesus. 
the light on the mountaintop is amazing. And it makes my heart long for the day when Jesus returns and we no longer have to live in the valley. But until that day, I want to remind you that we have the constant companionship of this friend and king named Jesus with us. And so lean into his arms, experience his presence with you today, and walk by his strength through the valley that we're in. Okay? Can you do that with me? Let's stand for prayer. God, the contrast here is striking. In heaven, all things are glorious and perfect, and there's holy, perfect love. There, there's, there's nothing that distorts that. There, there's no marring of that. Is is absolutely right and gorgeous and stunning. And we look forward to that day when sin will be no more. We sing of that. Sin will be no more. Uh, in heaven. But God, right now, we're still living in this valley. It's chaotic and it's, it's, it's dark and it's, it, it's, you, Satan's evil is here and it's working and it's trying to destroy all that you've created. But I thank you that you have won over all of that. We'll see the fullness of that someday, but in the here and now, we are convinced you have won. And you're winning over hearts and minds of people through the proclamation of your gospel. You're saying, listen to me. Here's the main thing. My son is going to a cross. He defeats Satan. He defeats sin. He defeats death. We get to look back and see all of that having happened. And so now we, we know, we can see, and we, we believe this Messiah. We believe this Christ. We need him. Not only to forgive us for our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but we need him to know how to live and we need his strength to live in this valley. God, I pray that you would help us as members of this church to be light and salt in our community. And yeah, there's a lot of bad things happening out there, but that doesn't mean we have to cower away in fear. Help us to go out and to speak truth and to do it lovingly and kindly, graciously. And to watch how you take the truth of your gospel and transform people from the inside out. We love you. We thank you for your presence in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray.